HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this weekly journey through culinary history. And, you know, I was reading something not long ago about a southern chef who had all his grandmother's recipes, was trying to recreate some particular dinner or dish and or series of dishes and got everything together, cooked all the food, and then tasted it and said, just doesn't taste like grandma's. I had all the ingredients, but you know, they weren't the original ingredients. They weren't the original source of the seeds. He was using modern day sources. And it's something that has um, has been of interest to my guest today, and he is Dr. David Shields. And David is the Carolina Distinguished Professor at the University of South Carolina and the chairman of the Carolina Gold Rice Foundation, which has brought back the true Carolina rice. And he does more work in this seed-saving, seed-finding um, of, of our original, the original cultivars of the ingredients that were used in some of those old recipes. He has written extensively on food studies, and he is the author of his most recent book, his, well, one of his previous books on food was Southern Provisions, the Creation and Revival of a Cuisine, in uh, which chronicles the um, emergence in the 1800s of a distinctive set of foodways along the southeastern coast of the United States. And most recently, he published a book called Culinarians, and that's about the lives and careers for the first age of American fine dining. And David is doing a lot of work in bringing back some of these original 
flavors and finding the original plants. David, welcome. Hey, thank you for having me here. Uh, you were telling me that, that, well, you've done such phenomenal work with, uh, with rice, particularly in the southern region, and we now have true Carolina gold rice. That's right. How did you know we didn't have it? Well, um, it's interesting. I guess in the 1980s, Alice Waters began a refocusing of the attention on the intrinsic tastes of vegetables and, and grains. Uh, and asking, you know, why are we masking things with sauces? Why are we tarting this wonderful food up with all of this extrinsic uh, material? And um, the question became, um, well, where are the superlative vegetables? And I'm sure many of you have experienced the um, not-too-exciting uh, uh, encounter with a grocery store tomato and uh, <laughs> found that um, it was strangely available out of season and uh, strangely hard and also uh, curiously tasteless. Right, indeed. Uh, and that um, numbers of vegetables seem to have uh, somehow diminished in their glory. Uh, and so one of the things that... Um, people became concerned with in the 1990s was um, trying to locate where the superlative vegetables of yesteryear have gone. And um, I was enlisted into this effort. Now, in order to understand where they did go, we have to understand something about why flavor became increasingly less important to people who were breeding vegetables. And I like to use the example of uh, a watermelon that uh, before the Civil War was renowned for its flavor. It's called the Bradford watermelon. Uh, it and a cousin watermelon called the rattlesnake watermelon, hmm. uh, which was from uh, Georgia, uh, were universally considered the best tasting melons that uh, were available in the United States. After the Civil War, um, the entire southern economy is in ruins. There's one intact railway line to the north, and the people are thinking, how can I get any cash at all? And they ship watermelons north. And the people in New York have never tasted watermelons quite as sumptuous as a Bradford watermelon mm. or a rattlesnake. And it kickstarts a demand for southern vegetables, which gives rise to the southern truck farming movement. But there's a problem. The Bradford watermelon has a very tender rind. And when you stack them in uh, boxcars, the ones on the bottom row... Squished. Yeah, they, they crush. <laughs> and you have watermelon juice. And if you're losing 40% of your, your crop going north, you don't make a profit. So they started thinking, well... We can breed that watermelon with one that has a hide of a rhino. Uh, they find the scaly bark watermelon that has a very tough rind, and they meld the two and create a watermelon called the Kolb's Gem. Doesn't taste as good as, uh, as the Bradford, but it'll ship four deep in a boxcar. Hmm. And, you know, since it's New Yorkers who are eating it, we don't care. They're <laughs> saying in the South. Probably tasted better than the watermelons that we could grow here anyway. Right. But... <laughs> Then something further happens. You know, people always put their 
part where their money comes from. And people started growing these Kolb's Gem watermelons for entire countrysides. Um, counties of Georgia were just covered with this watermelon. And whenever you monocrop, whenever you make a landscape just one ingredient, sooner or later the bug or disease that loves that thing more than anything else is going to show up mm. and they'll find paradise. This happened with a disease called Fusarium wilt in 1893. Within the course of one growing season, two-thirds of the Georgia watermelon crop is destroyed. Wow. And so the farmers say, we have to have a disease-resistant watermelon. And they go, plant breeders go searching, and they find this watermelon called the Congo from West Africa, which has disease-resistant. And as you can see, with every new crisis, flavor becomes increasingly marginalized. So we bred the flavor out of the yes. product, right? Productivity... Shelf-stable, but it doesn't taste like anything. Right, right. Uh, I appeal. All of these things trump flavor until that moment in the end of the 20th century when people, particularly chefs, began asking, where did the flavor go? How can we bring the flavor back? Hmm. And... Um, and rice. But that's how I, my question was rice. So someone could really... They could really remember rice when it had a distinctive flavor. Right. And and Carolina Gold was a particularly interesting rice. Uh, it emerged, we don't actually know where it comes from. We know genetically that it's a subtropical Japonica rice whose genetic origin is in South Asia. But it may have come through Africa. And it shows up immediately after the American Revolution when the Madagascar white rice has the production has been destroyed because of the war. So they bring seed from somewhere else and they taste the rice and it has this remarkable starch bloom mm -hmm. that tastes wholesome. Uh, and they realize that uh, this is the ideal rice to use as a palate for mixing flavor. And the African-American cooks of the Low Country um, all have this one-pot aesthetic in terms of their cooking, mm -hmm. and they adopt this rice as the rice. Uh, and um, it becomes the central staple of, of uh, first low country and then uh, southern cooking generally over the course of the 19th century. So you actually had to go back to Africa to, or southern Asia to find the original rice and then bring it back again? Was there any any of the original rice hanging around yes, in the low uh, country? Or? Um, because it was such an important rice, um, even after rice planting ceased to be economical in the last rice plantations died out in South Carolina and a cheaper white Honduran rice, which interestingly enough is actually genetically related to hmm. Carolina gold, uh, supplants it in the marketplace in Texas and Louisiana become central. Carolina gold remains important as a breeding rice because um, there is uh, this flavor that people expect with rice. Yeah. So it becomes the ancestor of a lot of rices, and the USDA maintains uh, in its uh, germplasm repository all the historic, important commercial um, grains. 
in the small grains repository. And there was a man who particularly loved the rice. Uh, he was from Louisiana, who's growing out in uh, Texas, a uh, Dr. Bollock. And um, a man named Charles Schulze, uh, Dr. Schulze of Savannah, um, requests the rice because he had read about rice-fed ducks, and he had a duck pond, <laughs> and he wanted to taste the glory himself. So he begins growing it again, and chefs hear about it, and he won't give any of the rice to them, but he auctions off uh, some of the rice in a fundraiser for the Episcopal church that he attends, and all of these chefs and people show up and bid this rice <laughs> into, the, into the stratosphere. And uh, one of the people who was bidding was one of the great heirloom grain millers in the United States, uh, uh, Glenn Roberts. And uh, Glenn is the CEO of Anson Mills. Anson Mills, right. And he, in particular, was a, a moving force in the South for the repatriation of the grains, the historic corn varieties, Carolina gold rice, and uh, now barley and uh, wheat and other things. Hmm. And it's he who actually says, you know how to do research. Why don't you help us find out what we need to restore? And... Uh, well, the, so this you got active and you became chairman of the of the Carolina Gold Rice, Rice foundation. foundation, and now this foundation, you suddenly you're interested in all the not suddenly, but then this has I'm sure spurred on the interest for all these other seeds that we need to recapture flavor from, and the foundation is supporting your research in so many of these areas. Tell me about something you're working on or that you just finished working on. You were telling me, showing me pictures actually of. Peanut plants. Oh, yes. Uh, well, the ancestral peanut of the South is uh, a small, sweeter peanut uh, with a better you mean, oil. You mean bigger's not better? Well, <laughs> uh, actually, bigger is better for roasting peanuts, I uh, think. Uh, but uh, for general cooking, uh, this small, sweet peanut, that was called the Carolina, some people call it the African. Um, was grown for from the early colonial period until about 1930. And then because it was so small, it was very difficult to harvest. You were always losing a percentage if you were picking it mechanically, and it was terrible for the backs of, you know, live pickers. Yeah. Uh, uh, so it's How many peanuts does it take to fill a bag, right? It, it's, <laughs> it's, it uh, ceased being grown. And it was the original boiled peanut, the original hmm. peanut candy peanut, the, the original, uh, you know, there are things that used to exist like peanut fritters where you'd fry vegetables in a kind of peanut batter made from peanut meal. Uh, the famous oyster peanut and oyster soup was uh, of uh, Virginia and, and North Carolina was uh, made from these peanuts. So we knew culinarily they were very important. We knew that they were the peanut that the entire African dimension of Southern cooking used, like, you know, this chicken and peanut stews and things like that. So we were looking for it assiduously. Um, we, one of the things that this foundation did was we did 
several years of research and came up with a list of all of the enduring important ingredients that were gone. And the list numbered like 45 cultivars, hmm. important plants. And um, so we went out looking. Uh, and we spent years looking. I'm going to say, where do you where do you start? Oh, you know, there are always seed saver networks, and mm. you call up the county extension agent uh, f- from the ag program of NC State or or Clemson or, or or the University of Georgia, and ask the locals, "Is anyone growing uh, old peanut in your neighborhood?" Mm. And um, what happens is sometimes they'll say yes, and uh, when you describe something, they'll usually know it. Now, peanut is a commodity, and often the right to grow it is controlled by a state board. Hmm. It's a very centralized thing, but there are always people who violate that. They have little garden patch peanuts that they maintain in the back, and that's what I was banking on. Someone had it, but they didn't. I had to. I found it with one of the great peanut breeders in the United States, a man named Tom Islib, a NC State professor. And um, he was in charge of an archive of old peanuts that had been collected by NC State when they first began their peanut breeding program during the Depression. And they'd gone out and collected every peanut variety being grown in the state. And uh, lots of the lines they never looked at or never used, and since bigger was better in the eyes of breeders, uh, the small sweet peanut got neglected. And I asked him about, do you have any peanuts with either the name Wilmington or African or Carolina? And he said, yes, we have We have Carolina 4 and Carolina 8. And I thought, well, <laughs> I may be onto something. And we sent them to Dr. Brian Ward of Clemson, who does the grow-outs for the Foundation of Historical Plant Materials. And 12 of the 20 seed peanuts of Carolina 4 grew. And these were the real deal. Small peanuts, flat growth habit. When you tasted them, sweeter, lovelier, greater oil. And from those 12 peanuts that grew just a little while ago, we released over 6 million peanuts of the Carolina African variety to growers throughout the South. And, um, you know, I think they're commercially available through the Someone wants to try them out. Uh, the Bradford Watermelon Company um, um, in Sumter, South Carolina, has some for sale. Oh, uh, interesting. Both in, in shell and uh, and shelled. Oh. Well, there are uh, so many other um, historical plant material to to talk about too that you've been interested in. And we're going to take a short break, and when we can come back. We will talk about some of these other plants. Oh, that's great. Heritage Foods USA is a farm-to-table online butcher and founding sponsor of Heritage Radio Network. Patrick Martins founded Heritage Foods USA in 2002 to save endangered species of livestock from extinction. He learned about the plight of endangered foods while working for Slow Food, a nonprofit started in 1986 in Italy when the first McDonald's opened on the Spanish steppes of Rome. To counter the homogenizing effects of fast food, Slow Food was formed to bring attention to regional cuisines and ingredients. By 2000, Patrick was the president of Slow Foods USA and working on adding 
heritage breeds to their arc of taste, but he decided to go further than a metaphorical arc and actually do something to preserve rare breeds. That was the moment that Heritage Foods slogan, Eat Them to Save Them, was born. By creating a market for delicious meats from Heritage Breeds, we can ensure they'll be around for generations to come. Plus, Heritage Breeds just tastes a whole lot better. Learn more at HeritageFoodsUSA.com and use the code HERITAGERADIO for two free pork chops with your first order, brother. Hi, we're back, and I'm talking with Dr. David Shields. We're talking about finding, saving seeking out historical seeds and and plants to bring back the flavor of some of our earliest uh, recipes, make those foods taste, or or taste the plants, make the vegetables taste better. Um, We talked about the the rice and and the peanut. Um, What are some of the other things that that you've been active in or that you are currently searching, researching? Um, we, we originally had a great deal of interest in b- grain um, because uh, grain is difficult to grow in the South um, because of insects and diseases like rust. Um, and we were particularly interested in getting the original biscuit, whiskey, and cake flour wheat of the South, that soft white winter wheat mm-hmm. that... Uh, was um, transformed by homemakers into magical creations and by distillers into uh, elevating beverages. And um, so um, we had to actually do a fair amount of, I don't know, I guess you would call it conceptual translation. Um, It turns out that the particular wheat that survived uh, um, a, um, a purple, uh, str- purple straw wheat had other names like blue stem or hmm. uh, um, purple, purple wheat. And over the years, those names changed in different regions. And so you I, really didn't know what you were looking for. Yeah, you know, I, when we were looking at the thing. I thought that purple straw wheat was something that had been created, you know, after the Civil War. But when I realized that this was actually a renaming of another wheat that preexisted it, and the date kept on going back earlier, 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 until it was in the middle of the colonial period. And what's interesting about this wheat is that it grew immediately, uh, you know, with extreme rapidity. Uh, and it was grown over the winter in, in the South. And because it was grown so quickly and comes to maturity so quickly, it avoided all of the insect problems oh, okay. that you had when the bugs start appearing in, in, in late spring. Uh, so the purple straw wheat actually was in large-scale commercial production and growing into the 1970s when it was replaced by these modern wheats that are hyperproductive. Now, the thing about these wheats is that they're real land races. These are the most ancient grains that have been uh, improved by um, farmers over hundreds of plant generations, sometimes thousands of plant generations. Mm -hmm. And the farmers themselves are the consumers. And one of the things that they seek is wholesome taste. Now, 
one of the things we have to think about here is that uh, every animal um, knows what is edible and nutritious in its um, environment by the chemical signature when they taste it. Mm. Uh, they're hardwired to respond to this. And human beings are the same as birds and slugs in this regard. So flavor was always a signature of nutrition. And these particular wheats were hand-selected to be more and more and more wholesome over you know, the many, many generations. So the, the oldest grains have this particular, I don't know, taste magic <laughs> to them. And what's happened is grain breeding since the middle of the 19th century just turned its back on that. And productivity and disease resistance, just like with the watermelon. Right. They, they were looking for uniformity or something, right? Right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, your biscuit with a purple straw wheat will be, um, you know, the taste of the ages. Hmm. That's, that's the taste of uh, wholesomeness from... You know, hundreds of years ago. Yeah, early, early, or late 1700s, at least, early 1800s. Right. Now, uh, we you, do... Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, we deal with fruit and other things. Uh, I well, talked about the watermelon. Yeah, bit. but I also wanted to know, because I, I, I had a, a particular question and um, line of thought here, and that was, you told me about some corn. You actually had to go out of the United States to find some of the, some red corn. Was it red corn? Did you find that? Um. No, it was, it was actually uh, a rice variety that we found, oh. Oh, a red-bearded rice. Something uh, that had to be in quarantine before you can start yes, that's testing right. it. Yes, that's right. So, this is an interesting story because it, it deals with um, African-American history as well as agricultural history. We know that um, most of the rice that was grown in the South was grown in water impoundments, mm. in ponds. But there was this one variety of red-bearded rice that was grown like a garden plant. It was called upland rice, red-bearded upland rice. And we know that it was imported from West Africa at several points in the 18th century. Thomas Jefferson is even engaged in distributing casks of this stuff around the South because he believes that upland farmers on hills should have the benefit of a grain. Well, this upland rice variety, which is grown everywhere in the South, disappears in the early 20th century. Um, we don't know why it disappears. Maybe rice became so cheap that it didn't pay for anyone to grow it themselves. Right. Um, but we were looking and wondering where this rice went. And um, it turns out it went to Trinidad. And it went to Trinidad in 1816. And what happened was, during the War of 1812, the British Army was invading the United States, and they attempted to recruit slaves to fight against their masters mm -hmm. all along the southern seacoast. And um, the enticement was, you will be an official Royal Marine, you will receive pay, you will receive land and liberty upon the completion of your service. And the British, interestingly enough, fulfilled that promise and settled these Marines who had been recruited from the coastal islands of Georgia in southern Trinidad. 
where they call themselves the Americans, M-E-R-I-K-A-N-S. <laughs> and um, the Americans um, have taken all of the seeds that they were growing in coastal Georgia, in Cumberland Island, Sapelo, and have kept them alive. And uh, an ethnobotanist named Francis Morian invited me down. I had read about this. I knew that they had this rice called Maruga Hill rice, um, which they had been growing since the early 19th century. And I was wondering if this was the red-bearded West African rice that, uh, that was always mentioned in the agricultural journals. I went down there, I met a man named John Elliott, who was the seventh generation of one of these Royal Marines from the coast of Georgia, and he was growing that rice in the field. Hmm. And um, the Gullah Geechee community of the uh, seacoast, very interested in repatriating this rice, which is their own rice, an African rice. And um, although genetically it may be an indica or whatever, um, and um, and so it's under USDA quarantine now. So you can't even try it out back in, in Georgia again for how long does it have to stay in quarantine? Uh, a number of years. Hmm. Um, and um, if you're really curious about this rice, I'm sure that you could import milled Maruga Hill rice from Trinidad. Um, and uh, Francis Morian, I'm sure, would... Uh, point you to a, a, a person who could supply it. Mm-hmm. Is there an um, an agency, an organization, much like the Carolina Gold um, Rice Foundation, someplace people could contact to inquire about um, some of these these old flavors, these these heirloom flavors? Well, uh, Slow Foods, Arc of Taste, of course, is the... Uh, um, the entity in the United States, which and is the preservator of right. uh, our agricultural heritage. And you're the chair of the Southern Region, correct? That's right. And okay. um, so even though my particular interests began in the um, coastal region, because I uh, am um, dealing with all the South, I've uh, expanded my interests and, uh, and we've uh, gone out finding other things like the Appalachia's die house cherry. The yeah, sour, you mentioned fruit. You were doing fruit. S- right? a f- a sour cherry of the uh, south, which uh, was fa- found um, uh, on a farm in Somerset, Kentucky. And uh, I'm in the process now of repatriating the lemon cling peach, which was originally a peach from 18th century Charleston that spread throughout the United States, became a very famous West Coast canning peach. But I'm particularly interested in that it was a great brandy peach. (laughs) And distillers are are, um, one of the people who are most interested now in the restoration of these grains and and fruits because um, flavor... Uh, and terroir has become um, the new hot way of making yourself a distinctive brand in the world of distilling. Right. Well, you mentioned the same thing with the corn. I mentioned corn earlier. The, no, right. A red corn, Jimmy Red Corn, right? That. Yes, um, um, Jimmy Red Corn is a is a dent corn that is a, has a little indentation on the uh, kernel, 
so it looks like a molar. Uh, and uh, originally a meal corn, um, and this red corn came to James Island, South Carolina, sometime in the middle of the 19th century, and was used for hooch. Uh, local African-American distillers made a drink called scrap iron out of it. And um, one of the things which is interesting is one group of people who paid exquisite attention to corn flavor were um, moonshiners and, um, you know, home distillers. And many early corn varieties were preserved by them. And Jimmy Red is the one that was the low country. And it's particularly interesting oily corn. Uh, and distillers like High Wire and Crouch Distilling have adopted it, and the flavor that it gives is so rich that you don't need the usual additives of rye or wheat to give the punch to the flavor of your bourbon. Hmm. Uh, so it is quite remarkable in that respect. Well, that's interesting. Well, the stories, I'm, I'm sure there, hopefully there will be more stories to come because you will keep finding more heirloom varieties to uh, to seek out and, and repatriate, if you will, into the regions where they originated. Right. I'm, I'm particularly interested in oats right now because, oh. uh, you know, the oats that were bred for horse racing, for feed for horses, is so much higher protein than the commercial oats now available, about twice as much. So if you have a bowl of oatmeal in the morning from like a Virginia gray turf oat, it's like chugging a six-pack of Red Bull or something like that. Mm-hmm. It gives you so much energy. Wow. Well, David Shields, it's always <laughs> it's always a delight to talk to you and learn so much about, about the food. Hopefully you will write a nice book about these flavors coming back and... Uh, Get that, get that on. I'm sure that you have something probably already in mind. But um, in the meantime, don't stop your work in in finding, in researching, and, and saving these old varieties because it's. I think it's so important to to recapturing those original tastes. And thank you so much for sharing. Well, thank you for letting me talk. And thank you for listening to A Taste of the Past. And I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.